God, we thank you for today, for this opportunity to gather, to worship, to fellowship, to engage with one another, and more importantly, most importantly, to engage with you. God, we pray for the kids uh, upstairs. We pray for Grace Place, and we pray that that is a, a place of, of safety, a place of uh, encouragement, a place where these kids of our church can ask questions uh, and can learn about you. Lord, we pray for those, uh, for our volunteers, our leaders, give them an extra dose of patience, give them an extra dose of energy, uh, and help them to be intentionally present as they sing, as they dance, as they do crafts, as they tell stories, as they teach about you, Lord, and all of the things that they do. I pray that they are reflecting your love for our kids uh, through the way that they lead that time upstairs. God, we thank you for blessing our church continuously over and over with many new little ones, and Lord, we pray for their hearts and minds. We pray that you would save them uh, at an early age, that they would come to know you as Father and Savior, uh, that they would walk with you for a long, long time. Um, God, we pray for our city. We pray for, God, we pray for opportunities for the church as a whole to connect, to engage, to love our city well, to reflect the gospel in the way that we commune with one another, in the way that we engage with this city as we are neighbors and relatives, as we work at our jobs, as we do all of these things, we pray that we would be reflecting you in the way that we live out our lives. God, this morning we uh, open your word and you have a word for us today. You have a message. You have a reason for us to be here this morning and to be in this book and at this time. God, I pray for all of us because we come in this week having a variety of different days, months, weeks, years, and we need you. We need more of you. Regardless of how things are going, we need more of you. We can benefit from having more of you in our lives. Help us to focus and hear from you this morning. God, I pray for those this morning who are suffering, who are in pain, who are hurting for a variety of reasons, whether it be physical or spiritual or mental or emotional, Lord, we pray that you would be the God of comfort, that you would be the God of rest, that you would be the God who dwells with his people, engages with his people, and loves us well. God, as we open your word, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, minds to comprehend and hearts to believe and hands and feet to respond. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So we are in the midst of uh, walking through Acts, uh, and we are in the middle of chapter 21. I'm going to give you a quick recap on 21, and then we'll jump in to where we are today. So uh, chapter 21, Paul has been on this journey, and he is heading to Jerusalem. He finally gets there, even though many, many different people told him, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem, it will end poorly for you. Paul doesn't exactly know the details, but he does know that something bad is going to happen to him, and he is prepared to suffer whatever he must for the sake of the gospel and Jesus. Paul eventually does get to Jerusalem, where he spends time with the elders. They share stories about what God had been doing through Paul and his ministry. And the elders in Jerusalem inform Paul that a rumor had been flying around that Paul has turned his back on the Jewish customs, and he has been teaching against the Jewish customs. Now, this isn't true, but that's the story going around. And these elders are worried that those who feel this way about Paul, those who believe these rumors, are going to cause a bit of an uproar. 
So to appease the situation, they tell Paul, look, we have four men in our midst, in our community, who are going through a Nazarite vow. The plan is, Paul, what we want you to do is we want you to go through the purification system with them. We want you to go through all the steps that they go through for purification. And then we want you, at the end of their vow, to pay their offering that they give to the church as part of their vow. This will be a public display of your adherence and your embrace of Jewish customs. Paul agrees. He goes to the temple. He goes through the purification steps. He gives notice that the vow is going to be up in seven days. He makes everyone sees him, hears him. It's very clear that Paul is connected to the temple. And that's where chaos kind of ensues. We're going to pick it up in verse 27 of chapter 21. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously in Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. That was nice of them. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the, assass uh, the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Let's stop there. So we read in 27 that the Jews from Asia are the ones specifically stirring up the crowd. They are probably from Ephesus, where Paul had been in conflict with them for many years, right? We've talked about how Paul spent three years or so in Ephesus, and in a lot of that time, he's in conflict with the Jewish leaders. They have come to Jerusalem, right? We're here um, for Pentecost, and so people have come from all over the place to celebrate in Jerusalem. And so there are these leaders from Ephesus who already don't like Paul, and now here in Jerusalem, as everyone is together, they have an opportunity to cause more issues for him. It isn't too hard for them to really start a commotion. It says in verse 28, he, they cry out, he's teaching the people, he's teaching everyone everywhere that the law against, he's teaching against the people and the law and the temple. We already know there were rumors flying around Jerusalem that Paul might not, his teaching might not all be on the up and up. And now there are people saying, we've seen it, we've heard it. He's teaching against our people. He's teaching against our traditions. He's teaching against even this special place, the temple. He's teaching all people everywhere against his own people. He's speaking out against us and against the law of God, and he's defiled this holy, this holy place, the temple. Now, 
again, none of this is actually true beyond the reality that Paul does not find his trust for righteousness in anything other than Jesus. So yes, in a way he teaches that the temple and the law, these things are temporary, these things are from the past, these things point to Jesus, but he is not speaking out against them. Not in the way that they are trying to portray him. This group of Jews based much of their anger and uproar over a man named Trophimus and an assumption of the facts. We're going to see in this passage a lot of people making a lot of assumptions. Trophimus was a Gentile from Ephesus that they recognized. They saw him from home. He was a traveling companion of Paul. They also knew that Paul was going in and out of the temple with a group of men who these guys from Ephesus didn't know. And so they put two and two together and they come up with five. And they decided that clearly one of those men they've seen Paul going in and out of the temple with must be Trophimus. Now this is actually a big deal. This, of all the things that they accused Paul of, speaking against the people, speaking against the law, defiling the holy temple, defiling it by bringing a Gentile into the inner courts, that's actually a really big deal. For a Gentile to enter into the temple was a serious crime, a capital offense. The Roman authorities even allowed for the death penalty to be enacted if a Gentile trespassed into the inner courts, even if that Gentile was a Roman citizen. And we know that the Rome has put up all kinds of, there's laws for normal people and there's laws for the Romans. But even in this case, if a Roman citizen trespassed into the inner courts of the temple, they would be subject to the death penalty. Throughout archaeology, throughout people doing digs in, in that area, two different notices have been found on the walls of the temple. And one of those notices, it says, it said this, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. That was on the wall of a church. Ain't that inviting? Like, what if we just put up, hey, if you trespass in here, death penalty, right out on the walls. Not the most welcoming notice, but it speaks to the seriousness of the situation. If Paul was guilty of this, it would be a serious crime, but he's not. No one waits to find out, though. No one actually asks a question. The scandal and the uproar is much more interesting to the people. They get caught up in the headlines and so they get all kinds of stirred up in anger. We are constantly, as people, taking in content. Constantly taking in information. Do we always check and affirm and confirm everything we hear? From the story you heard from that relative about an old neighbor, to the Facebook post you read from somebody from high school, to that headline you scrolled through in bold letters that you didn't actually have time to read the article, but you formed a full-fledged opinion on just because you saw it in bold and you ran with it. We live in a day and age where not only does everybody have an opinion, but the ease at which you can make those opinions and thoughts known and spread is rampant. For all of the benefits and gifts that technology brings to us, the openness and lack of accountability when it comes especially to social media has created the ability for anyone to say anything, and as long as you are the loudest voice, you win, regardless of whether or not you have truth on your side. Be careful what you listen to, Christian, especially when so much of it is driven by the negative. When so much of it is driven by attacking and trying to shoot down the other side's opinion. When a person's whole argument and selling point 
is just built on pointing out the flaws and wrongdoings of everyone else. That doesn't make them right. It just makes them good at misdirection. And misdirection, that is one of Satan's favorite tactics. He's been using that since the beginning. Right? Genesis 3. He shows up and speaks to Eve. Did God actually say, don't eat of any tree? No, he didn't say don't eat of any tree. He said that we can't eat of this specific tree or we will die. No, you won't die. In fact, you won't die. Don't think about that. You'll become like God. Doesn't that sound great? He has been the king of misdirection. C.S. Lewis, in one of his great uh, one of his great fictional pieces, is the Screwtape Letters. And Screwtape Letters, if you don't know about it, is uh, a correspondence of sorts between an older established demon and his nephew, his young apprentice. And the older demon is instructing the younger one on how to best tempt, how to best distract, how to best get his human to not focus on God. It's a fascinating read. And in it, he talks about the noise. And he says, music and silence, how I detest them both. Hell has been occupied by noise. Noise, the grand dynasm, the audible expression of all that is excellent, ruthless, and virile. Noise, which alone defends us from silly qualms, despairing scruples, and impossible desires. We will make the whole universe a noise in the end. The melodies and silences of heaven will be shouted down in the end. Let's make it as noisy as possible so they can't hear from the Holy Spirit, so they can't focus on what God wants to say. Our world is noisy. How do you sift through it all? How do you figure out what is worth listening to and what isn't? What's real and helpful and what's just clickbait? What are the lies and the gossip and the slander and what is honest and true? Paul gives some instruction in Philippians 4. He tells the church, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. When you hear stories built on someone's flaws, failures, and negatives, don't give it space in your head and heart. What good comes from dwelling on something that at best is a sad reminder of man's depravity and at worst is just a lie told to entice people to click to the next link? Be diligent and vigilant in what you consume. Do not just meander through life aimlessly consuming the noise of this world because it will fill you up and distract you. And the city gets filled up and distracted, stirred up, it says in verse 30. They are stirred up and they rush Paul. They drag him out, not for a quiet quiet chat. They drag him out of the temple, out of the inner gates. And as they drag him out, the gates shut behind him. These are the gates leading into the inner courts of the temple. It's probably an attempt by the temple guards to keep the inner courts, to keep their sacred space holy and pure and undefiled. Something bad's going to happen over here, but let's let it be over here. Let's keep our nice calm, safe space, nice and calm and safe. And so they shut the gates. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary about this situation, he says this. He says, for Luke himself, this may have been the moment when the Jerusalem temple ceased to fill the honorable role hitherto ascribed to it in its twofold history. The exclusion of God's message and messenger from the house once called by his name sealed its doom. 
It is now ripe for the destruction which Jesus had had predicted for it many years before. We know in Luke 21, 6, Jesus himself said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will be not left, there will be, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As Jesus predicted that one day the temple would be destroyed, and it does, it gets destroyed in AD 70. When Jesus was crucified, a lot of different things were happening. One of the things that happens is that the, the curtain, the thick curtain that separated the inner courts where the Jewish people went, the Jewish men went to worship God, and the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwelled, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was in the Holy of Holies where only one high priest could go one time of year, could actually go into that space. It was set apart. You didn't mess with it. You didn't touch it. And there was this big, thick curtain that separated God's people from God. And one of the many things that happened during Christ's crucifixion was that that curtain was split in two. It was a symbolic gesture by God physically showing us the new reality of the relationship between us and God. God made a way for us to have an intimate relationship and engagement with him. But here now, these religious leaders have chosen to physically remove Paul and the gospel from the house of God, and they lock the doors behind them. They have placed a barrier once again, one that still lingers today between the Jewish people and the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel was locked out of the temple in Jerusalem, but it cannot be kept from spreading throughout the temple that is God's creation. And here's where things get a little interesting and a little bit more complex, and it's something that's going to play out for us over the next couple of chapters. All of this commotion is happening in the outer courts, in the courts of the Gentiles. It's happening right outside the temple, and across the way stood the Antonia Fortress, it was a stationing of Roman troops led by a military tribune, a local commander, a commander of over a thousand people. This fortress of Antonia was connected to the outer courts by a few flights of steps. They basically built this fortress and connected it to the outer courts with a flight of steps. This uproar makes enough noise to send the guards in to break it up. And when the soldiers show up, they had to stop the crowd from beating Paul, it says in verse 32. They have dragged him out and are putting the boots to him by the time the soldiers show up. He's clearly the victim. He's the one on the ground getting beaten by a mob. And yet it says in verse 33 that the tribune, the one in charge, has Paul arrested. Because again, he's acting under the wrong assumption. First, we have the Jewish leaders assuming Paul had defiled the holy temple. Now we have the tribune assuming that he had done something wrong, that Paul clearly must have been the one in the wrong here. If just anybody would ask a question before they made a move, a lot of things would get figured out. Communication, man. Over-communicate, it's always going to do you good. This tribune figured Paul must have been some kind of criminal to stir up this kind of hate, this kind of anger. But wanting to see this play out legally, he has Paul chained to two guards, and he tries to understand what happened, it says in verse 34. He tries to get some idea, and it says in verse 34, some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. As we've seen in the past, when these kind of things happen, some people said one thing, some people were there for this idea, some people were there for this idea, some people just saw a crowd and showed up and wanted to be part of the noise. No one has a real good idea as to why Paul had been dragged out and beaten. This mob mentality is once again ruling. 
It's so chaotic that the tribesman decides to take Paul into the barracks to have an actual conversation with him and figure out what he has done, because in his mind, he's clearly the bad guy. The crowd is so outraged and confused that due to the violence, the soldiers have to actually pick up and carry Paul and like body surf him past the crowd to keep him from being beaten as he's carried up the steps. The crowd is chanting, away with him, away with him. They're unified in wanting Paul hurt and gone, but their motives as to why are a mixed bunch of chaotic nothingness. Finally, it says in verse 37 that the tribune has gotten Paul away from the crowd. And at this point, I'm sure Paul did not look very impressive. I mean, he wasn't physically, he wasn't all that impressive physically anyway, but at this point, he's, he's beaten and he's bruised and he's covered in dirt. And yet here still, Paul has, was present in the moment. He saw the situation and understood what was going on. And even though he wasn't physically all that impressive, he was still in control of the moment. Paul knew where he was and who he was speaking to, and so he addresses the tribune in Greek, the language of the academics, the language of the intellectuals and the Romans. This is the language of the educated. This confuses the tribune. He had assumed Paul was this Egyptian leader who had gained a following and acquired thousands of people, and they kind of tried to overtake Rome and Jerusalem a couple of years prior, and it was half-hearted and it failed. He assumed he was this outlaw that they were looking for, and the fact that he is now speaking Greek to the tribune confuses him, because once again he had made a wrong assumption. The leader put two and two together, and nobody can come up with four. Paul tells him in verse 39, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Sicilia. These are Jewish people out here in such an uproar. Let me go talk to them. Let me go speak to my people. I think I can fix this. I think I can do something here. The tribune must have been just intrigued at this point as to what was going to happen, and so he allows Paul to do what he asks. It says in verse 40, he goes out and stands on the steps. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. So Paul goes and stands on the steps. I think he's still chained to the two soldiers. He's got one on his right and one on his left. And it says he motions to the crowd, and somehow this gets everybody to quiet down. See, you guys laugh at us hand talkers, but hand talking has power and makes a point, and gets the whole crowd to be quiet. A hush falls over the crowd, and he addresses them, not in the educated language of the Greeks, but in the language of the people. He speaks to them in Aramaic. Aramaic was the most commonly, commonly spoke language of most Jews at the time. And even if you, didn't, if you didn't speak Greek, you spoke Aramaic, whether you were Jew or not. See, Paul's not dumb. He knows that this crowd is on the edge, and even though even something as simple as addressing them in Aramaic, he knew would buy him some goodwill. And so he addresses the crowd, it says in verse chapter 22. In verse 1, it says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Paul is going to take all these different assumptions that have been made, and he's going to address them with facts. He begins, literally, the words he says are, brothers and fathers, hear me, is how that's translated. Paul begins this speech in front of this very hostile crowd, already chained up, and he does so with somebody else's words. 
Paul here, brothers and fathers, hear me. Paul's quoting somebody else. Anybody know who? I'll give you a hint. It's in Acts. All right, I'll set the scene for you. Not Peter. Good question. A Christian has been taken captive for preaching the gospel. The Jewish leaders do not approve. They are violently opposed to him. This Christian addresses a very hostile crowd who wants him dead. It's almost an identical situation. And in Acts 7, verse 1 and 2, the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. Stephen proceeds to walk through an abbreviated history of God's people, beginning with Abraham and culminating by calling the leaders a stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears. You are resistant to the Holy Spirit, and you betrayed and murdered the Messiah. Stephen's speech, specifically that ending, enrages the crowd, and while Stephen looks up, he sees Jesus about to welcome him into heaven. The crowd rush him, drag him out of the city, and stone him to death. And you read in Acts 7, verse 58, the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And chapter 8 removes any uncertainty about who Saul was by telling us he approved of Stephen's execution. Now here we are, 30 years later, and as Paul stands before his own angry mob in Jerusalem, he begins with words that I believe haunted him until that day. He heard those words come out of Stephen's mouth. He heard Stephen's whole defense, and he watched him die for the gospel. He watched him die in this approved, mob-sanctioned execution. I don't know when, but at some point, the reality of what Stephen did, the reality of his belief, his faith in the gospel, must have weighed heavy on the heart of Paul. And he clearly carried those events and those words with him, those things that Stephen said with him for years and years. See, Paul doesn't know how this situation is going to end. So when pressed with potential final words, Paul tells his story. He starts by thinking back to the last time he saw a situation like this, and he thinks back to Stephen, and he thinks back, what did Stephen do? Stephen told God's story. I'm going to tell God's story. I'm going to tell my story and how the gospel changed my life. Now, we've read many of these points already from Paul in Acts. He tells the crowd, if they didn't already know him, who he had been. He tells them in chapter 22, he says, look, I'm a Jew from Tarsus, but I was raised here in Jerusalem. I was educated and instructed by Gamaliel. All of these facts combined with him speaking Aramaic would impress and endear him to the people. I'm a Jew. That's a win. I'm from Tarsus, but I grew up here in Jerusalem in God's city. I was taught and trained by one of the greatest rabbis ever. I was a Pharisee. I was zealous. I persecuted the church, persecuted the way. I persecuted them to death, capturing and sending them to prison. I did everything I could to stop them. He even says in his, in his speech, you can go ask the high priest, go ask the Sanhedrin, go ask the temple elders, ask them about me. They know who I was. I had letters from them allowing me to go to Damascus to capture Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem from punishment. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. 
this is who I was. I was zealous for the law, zealous to uphold these things that I believed would save me and save others. I was zealous for tradition, but I was blind to what was right in front of me. We know Paul's trip to Damascus took an unexpected turn, and this is the second time of three. He'll do it again one more time in Acts, where he recounts what happened to him on that road. About noon, there was a great light and a voice. Those traveling with Paul saw the light, but they didn't hear the voice because the voice wasn't for them. The voice was for Paul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He responds, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus of Nazareth, and you are persecuting. Paul met the risen Lord and Savior of all existence, and his life was changed. He is sent to Damascus not to capture and kill Christians, but instead to become one. Helplessly, he walked in darkness into the city. He sat in darkness, questioning everything he had ever been taught. Until it says in verse 12 of chapter 22, Ananias, a devout man with a great reputation, showed up. Brother Saul, receive your sight. And it wasn't just his physical sight that, sight that had been restored. No, Paul was given true sight of the reality of the Messiah, of God in the flesh, come to earth to die for our sins. It says in verse 14, Ananias addresses him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Brother Saul, receive your sight. Ananias took a step in that moment by being the first to invite Paul into the family of God. Brother Saul, see, once you meet Jesus, once you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, who you were isn't who you are. Ananias calls this man brother. This man who under any other circumstances, under the circumstances that was supposed to get Paul to Damascus, would have tried to chain and kill Ananias. But because of Jesus, because of the gospel, because it changes everything, Ananias can look Paul in the face. And whether or not Paul could look back because he was still blind, he can look in his face and say, you're my brother in Christ. You're family. God chose you, Paul. You got to see and hear from the righteous one, the one who died on the cross and who was stuffed in that tomb dead. The one who couldn't be held back, not by the guards or a boulder or the grave or death itself. The one who knew no sin and yet chose to take on our sin, to be punished for our sins, so that you and I and anyone and everyone who would put their faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ might receive that perfect righteousness from the righteous one. What saved Paul, what saved me, what saved you, can save you, will always save you. Grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Ananias says, God chose you, Paul. You are going to be his witness. So why wait? Because God's got work for you to do. God's got a plan, he says in verse 16. Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins by calling on his name. Come on, Paul. Your soul was stained by sin. It is washed clean through the blood of Jesus Christ. Your faith in Christ has made you clean. So as an outward act of what Christ has done to you internally, go and be baptized. From here, Paul tells the crowd about how Jesus himself told Paul, you need to get out of Jerusalem. Because the people weren't ready for Paul, and Paul wasn't ready for them. 
Something about the city of God not welcoming the message and messengers of God. Paul tried to argue with Jesus. That always ends well. He says, Lord, I, I was there. I, I approved of Stephen's execution. They've seen, they can see this change in me and how I am now different, and maybe that will give me an inroad. But instead, Jesus tells Paul, no, I got other plans for you, Paul. He tells Paul what we have seen play out in this book, that your primary mission field, Paul, will be to go to the Gentiles. That word, Gentiles, that's what started this whole mess. Paul was accused of bringing a Gentile into the house of God. And the crowd, as Paul is explaining this, and they're following along, and they're listening, and then they hear him talk about Gentiles, and they lose their minds, just when it seemed like things were settling down. They let him talk about Jesus. They let him talk about meeting the resurrected Jesus, and, and they were fine with that. But this notion for the Jews, one of the, the base issues that they had was this concept, this idea that they could be saved in the same way that a Gentile can be saved. They would say, okay, fine, sure, maybe Jesus was the Messiah, but, he's, but I'm different. I'm a Jew. I've done everything I'm supposed to. I've lived by the law. I'm better than them. That was always their issue. And so for Paul to say, I'm a messenger, I'm, my main mission field is to the Gentiles, and they will be saved by the same faith, by the same gospel that saved me, that saved you, that saved the Jews, the people revolt against that. They hear Gentiles and they lose their minds just when it seemed like things were calming down. Upon hearing that word, the crowd again begin to yell. They're taking off their cloaks. They're throwing dust in the air. They're, the violence and rage is building up again. And so the tribune gets Paul and he pulls him back into the barracks, still not quite sure about what's going on, but clearly seeing Paul has a way of stirring up this crowd and upsetting them. It could be that Paul, because, spoke, because Paul spoke in Aramaic, that the tribune didn't really know what he was saying. But he heard bits and pieces and he saw how the crowd responded to him. He's still not quite sure about who Paul is. So, like much of the Roman authority, he decides the best way to go about getting some information from Paul is not by asking questions, but let's just do some action. Let's flog him. Let's whip and beat him until the truth comes out. Let's figure out why these people are so enraged. And so the soldiers stretch Paul out, ready to beat him. And it's at this point, Paul holds on to his trump card until this very last moment as he's stretched out with his arms stretched, much like they did to Jesus in Jerusalem. His arms are stretched out as he's about to get beaten. And he says, is it legal for you to do this to a Roman citizen? It's at this point he reveals that his birthright is from Rome. Because it was illegal for a Roman citizen to be flogged in this manner prior to a trial. And even after a trial, it was almost never given to them as punishment. One of the guards hears Paul's question, takes that news to the tribune, who in verse 28 comes and speaks to Paul. He says, I bought this citizenship for a large sum of money. Paul said, I'm a citizen by birth. Tribune says, my experience is different than yours. See, but when he talks about buying his citizenship with a large amount of money, you couldn't just go into Rome and, and with a bag of money and say, I'd like to be a Roman citizen now, please. The way to do that was to bribe someone. You had to bribe an official. The only way to become a Roman citizen was, at this point, was by giving, if you 
uh, were a soldier and you were uh, did well in battle, they would maybe give it to you as a kind of a thank you. But in general, the way to become a Roman citizen at this point in history was, let's go find a corrupt official and bribe him. And that's apparently what the tribune had done. He talks about spending so much money to bribe a corrupt Roman official. Some think that this comment was about not so much the money, but basically what he was saying is, neat, you're a Roman citizen, so am I. I paid a bunch of money to a corrupt official. Anybody can become a Roman citizen these days if you have enough money. But at that moment, Paul says, no, we're different. Because mine is from, mine is about reputation and, and privilege from birthright. What the tribune had to pay for, Paul had from birth. His citizenship was passed to him by his father. See, Paul was a very rare breed, a devout and educated Jewish man with a Roman citizenship. In that time, in that world, in the way that Rome ran things, he, as we've basically seen, Paul had kind of free pass to go anywhere in the world he wanted to, to be able to share the gospel. He had such an education from the Pharisees, from studying under Gamaliel, that he could walk into any synagogue, and he would get to be able to stand and address the crowds based on his educational background. And he could travel and he could find himself in situations like this and say, I'm a Roman citizen. And that came with certain perks. The, car, the guards, upon hearing this interaction, become fearful and they realize that they had bound a Roman citizen. That in itself could have gotten all of those guards killed. But for some reason, they keep him in these chains. Wanting to get some kind of clarity and understanding of this whole mess, the tribune orders the Sanhedrin to meet and figure out what's going on. It's clear to him, though he doesn't know all the details, this is a religious matter. So if anyone was going to get to the bottom of this, it's the Sanhedrin, the high courts of the Jewish people, the mix of Pharisees and Sadducees that ruled things. And the Roman officials, when they said the Sanhedrin needed to meet, when they said, you need to decide this, you need to hold court, they responded. And that's what we're going to pick up next week. So if you like courtroom drama, come back next week because you'll get some of that. With Paul up against a hard situation, not knowing what was next, he defaulted and he shared his story. And in doing so, he shared the gospel and he shared Jesus. In his letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4, he tells the young pastor, preach the word, be ready in season and then out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Be ready in season and out. Be ready to share your story, to give a defense for what you believe and why. Why do you believe what you do? How have you seen God move in your life? Paul talked about who he was and what he had experienced through Jesus and how the gospel changed him. Your story, your life, your experiences, all of it matters and all of it is used by God. Now, some, the argument some of you may come up with is saying, well, you know what, I'm not Paul. No, you're not. And he wasn't you. He lived in that time at that place for that purpose. You live in this time in this place for God's purpose. He puts you, with all of your gifts, your talents, your abilities, your experiences, in this place at this time for the same reason he put Paul when and where he did. 
You aren't Paul. You aren't Peter. You aren't Ruth or Miriam. You are you. You are the first and only you. But you and every single one of those people, everyone that we read about in Scripture and hold up as these pillars of the faith, all have the same ultimate purpose on our life, to glorify God. You are to do it through the life and opportunities that God gives you, the relationships and interactions, the thoughts and desires and dreams. You probably won't be put in a position like what Paul is faced with here. But you will, at some point, have the chance to take the experiences and opportunities you have had and put them to use for the glory of God. How did Paul get into this spot? Because God set a course for his life to have the unique experience of being a Roman citizen who grew up to study and become a Pharisee under the best teacher possible. God calls Paul, and he changes his life, and he guides Paul on how and where to go. He equips him with teaching and training and people around him. He protects Paul. He gives Paul opportunities and moments to step into, tailor-made for Paul to glorify God. That's what God does. He made you. He knows you. He knows your strengths and your weaknesses. He has created you specifically in the way he has for the specific purpose of glorifying himself through you. He has placed you when and where and with whom he has to build you and equip you and prepare you and use you. Yes, God works in things like raining down fire from the sky and turning the Nile into blood, but he also works in what we would call the mundane. Where you live, where you went to school, if you went to school, what you studied, what kind of jobs you've had, what kind of experiences you have lived through, the family you grew up in, the relationships that have come and gone, even when those experiences are negative and hard and messy and full of poor decisions and brokenness, God can and will use all of it. If we believe God is in control of all things at all times, that means he is using all things for his glory and for our good. We, like Paul, know the ultimate goal and plan is to trust and glorify God. We don't always, we don't always get to know what that looks like or what that means exactly. And so all the more we need to devote ourselves to knowing him and knowing his will and grounding ourselves in scripture and in prayer. You have a purpose. You have a reason. You are not an accident or byproduct of random molecules colliding by luck. You were formed and created by the very one who spoke existence into existing. He made you. When you see a hindrance or flaw in yourself, God gave you that for a purpose. We are his workmanship, Paul says in Ephesians 2. His creation, the result of an intentional design and creator. You are created by God. Christian or not, you are the byproduct of the creative work of the God of all existence. He made you and he knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows your rising up and your sitting down, the amount of hairs on your head, your successes and your failures, the joys and the sorrows, the sufferings and the broken hearts and the frustration and the dreams and the longing and the sense of humor and the greatest, most, the greatest, most creative designer, the most delightful, wonderful things that you can come up with, the things that you love, the things that spark joy in you, the things that get you out of the bed in the morning. He knows about those things. He gave you those desires. But he also knows the wicked and the depraved and ugliness that lies within your heart. He knows all of it. He made you and he knows you. He knows everything about you. The stuff you want no one else to know, he already does. 
And in the midst of all of that, he loves you. Loves you so much he sent his son to die for you that you might have a chance to have a right, good, honest, real, personal, intimate, restored, renewed, peaceful relationship with him. For all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not might be saved. Not take a number and we'll see if we get to you kind of get saved. Not bring three to five recommendations and ten years of experience of being a Christian and then maybe you'll be good enough. Everyone and anyone who will admit their need for a Savior, believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins and choose him to be your Lord and Savior will be saved. God made you and he knows you and he loves you so much and he invites you to be part of what he is doing to redeem and restore and renew this world through himself. You don't have to be Paul standing on the temple steps addressing angry mobs to matter and to make a difference for the kingdom of God. You matter because God made you. And you matter because you have a story to tell. One of God's amazing, redeeming love and grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like you and me. That we once were lost, but now have been found. We were blind, and now we see. Brothers and fathers, sisters and mothers, hear me. God came to earth to pay the penalty for your sins in your place. He came to give you new life and forgiveness and hope. If that is your story, don't keep it to yourself. Share that with others. Tell your story. Tell the story of God in you and trust in God's saving power to work through you in others. Let's pray. Thank you that you are the God of intentional design, that you made us. This isn't happenstance. This isn't random. This isn't chaos. God, when we sit and we do have those times of silence, when we do get a chance to block out the noise of this world, it's easy sometimes to get caught up in the negatives of ourselves, the things we don't like, the regrets that we have, the lack of contentment even. God, help us to take those thoughts captive, to remember that you are in control of all things at all times, that even our mistakes, even our rebellions, even our Four choices can and will be used to glorify you. God, help us to actually live like we believe that we're important to you, that we are your sons and daughters, that we have value and worth because you made us. God, we don't know the situations that are going to come before us. We don't know the interactions and, and opportunities we will have. But we know that you have them set up for us ahead of time. Good works that you have laid out ahead of time. Help us to step into those moments. Help us to trust that you're going to move in those times. 
that help us to get past this idea that we need to have every answer to every question, that we need to have some kind of formal education. God, just help us to share our stories, to tell other people, to let other people know that this is real, that this, this isn't just facts and figures. It isn't just vague spirituality that makes us feel good, but this matters and it changed us and it, you moved in our lives and you took us from one thing and you made us another. But for some, you kept us from one thing and you kept us to be another. God, give us the boldness to speak. And in those moments, give us the words to speak. God, help us to trust you. To trust the truth and the facts of Scripture. When all else fails, when we are confused and overwhelmed by the situation, Lord, help us to remember to just point to you, to look to you, to make much of you, because that is the ultimate, that's what you made us to do, is to glorify you. So God, help us to do that. Lord, we need you. We get so overwhelmed by the noise, so confused, so distracted. Give us a hunger and thirst to know you more. Give us a longing and desire to know you deeper. And in doing so, give us those opportunities, God. We ask that you would give us those opportunities, give them this week, for us to step into some of those good works you have laid out ahead of time. Give us the, the opportunity this week to step in and to share our story, to tell people about who you are and what you've done and what you are doing. God, I pray that for those who don't know you, who don't know how good you are, who don't know about the life and the hope and the truth and the grace and mercy that is waiting for them. That right now in this moment, that opportunity, that reality becomes real for them. That they understand that the creator of all existence loved them so much that you sent your son to die for them. That they can have their sins forgiven, that they can have new life now here Things can be different. Life can be different. Hope and joy, contentment, purpose. These things are possible here and now through a relationship with you. God, you have made us to be the lights of the world. Help us to shine those lights brightly. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.